200 miles after we sold it, it started misfiring and had the coolant incursion issues. So what do you do? I mean, a customer bought this vehicle, 200 miles they put on it. I ordered a short block, we put a short block in it at no cost to the customer. That's how you make a name for yourself. And our reputation is very important. What's up, everyone? This is Car Dealership Guy. You're listening to the Car Dealership Guy podcast, which is my effort to give you access to the most unbiased and transparent insights into the car market. Let's get into today's episode. Brandon Miller is founder and dealer principal at Miller Auto. Him and his son are 50-50 partners and both first-generation used car dealers. In this conversation, we discussed launching their first dealership with only $40,000, breaking down the used car business model, how much money they make in the business, selling Teslas in cold Wisconsin, today's challengers for small car dealers, acquiring inventory in an intensely competitive market, and much more. This was a unique episode. I felt like the CDG podcast had plenty of massive dealer groups on as guests, but we were really lacking some representation from the small guys. So I hope to start filling that gap with Brandon Miller being the first. Before we get into the show, this episode is brought to you by Podium, the lead conversion platform for car dealerships. Podium helps you get found at the top of Google search and convert new leads faster with industry-leading communication tools and AI. With Podium, you can finally take the guesswork out of lead management, bring every lead into one unified inbox, respond automatically in two minutes or less, and even book appointments using AI. Get Podium and get ready to convert leads faster than ever and see why over 100,000 businesses like yours have given themselves an instant advantage with Podium. Get started today with 10% off your plan by texting Car Dealership Guy to 833 833- Four four one 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 six six. That's eight three three four four one 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 six six. Text that number and mention this podcast to get ten percent off your plan, or visit the link in the show notes below. This episode is also brought to you by CDK Global. CDK Global has been empowering nearly fifteen thousand dealers with the tools and technology they need to build deeper relationships with customers. Their team is keenly aware of the state of dealership technology, and while many vendors promise seamless experiences between your CRM, DMS, digital retail, and fixed ops, most of these bolt-on solutions tend to break workflows and cause more harm than good. That is why CDK has launched a new dealership experience platform. This new integrated software consists of everything you need to operate a dealership efficiently while delivering an unparalleled experience to your customers. Basically, everything working together, not separate, one system to run your dealership as opposed to 10. CDK developed it with an outside-in approach, listening to dealers every step of the way. You can learn more about CDK's dealership experience platform by visiting cdkglobal.com slash DXP or clicking the link in the show notes below. How do you go from, you know, launching this business to vertically integrating your business, launching all these adjacent businesses and truly, you know, building something special in, you know, your state of Wisconsin. So that's what we're going to dig into. Before we dig into that, I do have one question for you. Is it true that you were the mayor of your town? <laughs> you did some digging, yes. Yes, I was. You like that? Yep. <laughs> how was, w- w- what's the connection there? How do we, how'd you, you know, ma- mayor, dealer? Yeah. Yeah. So at the time, so I've been in the auto business, well, since my early 20s, but I took probably, uh, I want to say about six years, eight years um, that I wasn't involved in the auto business. And I owned a website design company, a computer store, and got roped into being a partner of a accounting business and tax practice. And while I was doing those two businesses, I was asked to run for mayor of the city that the businesses were in. And I- What city was that? Uh, city of Gillette. 
Wisconsin, small little 1,300 yeah. people. Small, small little place that we've never heard of. Putting it, putting it on the map. Right, right. And I, I was an outsider. Small communities, typically, if you're a mayor, you've lived there your whole life, so forth. Um, I'd lived there for about four years when I was, four or five years when I was elected. And yeah, the, the city had some accounting issues, infrastructure issues, stuff like that. And we decided that we needed to make a change. We did, and I, I was, I did one term and I wasn't going to run for a second term just for personal reasons. My father was getting sick. He was diagnosed with cancer and I just didn't want it anymore, but department heads and so forth talked me into running because they didn't want me to go. So I did run, but I didn't put my effort into it. And I was relieved when I wasn't reelected. So. Yeah, you didn't really want it. So wait, just explain to me, you were a dealer before this already? No, no. At that point, I was primarily my automotive was uh, management, automotive experiences management. So when I was about 20, I had my first job as a mechanic at Iowa 80 truck stop, which is the world's largest truck stop. And I, I did that for a short amount of time. And then I almost immediately went into management of auto repair shops and so forth. I managed a Midas in Fort Wayne, Indiana for about a year, year and a half. And shortly after entering the field, I've primarily been in management of some aspect of the automotive business. So I didn't really get into the uh, car dealership until after I was mayor. What, what, was, what was that transition like? Like why, why, why become a dealer? Well, because I love cars. You know, cars are kind of Oh, so you're 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 a car guy. I am a car guy, yeah, absolutely. So I mean from the time I was I, I think I owned probably five or six cars before I had my driver's license. You know, you know that doesn't always work out, by the way. Like a lot of times, like the car passionate person does not do well in the car business. For, yeah, for sure. <laughs> for obvious reasons, you know, you you get too emotionally attached to metal that needs to be sold for a profit. So. And and that and I'm actually very good at separating that. That was one of the things that I had to kind of teach my son when we first started, you know, working together and so forth. Well, he w- he was starting to flip cars before we even started the business, you know, and, you know, he'd get excited about a car. Oh, I really like this. I'm like, you got to take that out of your equation, bud. You're going to get attached to it. You're, not, you're either going to overpay for it <laughs> or you're not going to want to sell it. <laughs> oh my goodness. That's great. So wait, your son works with you. How do, what do you guys, how do you guys split up? Uh, your role. Uh, my son owns fifty percent of the business. We're fifty fifty partners. You know, we started the business when he was twenty one, which is you know two years ago, and he invested as much capital as I did to get it off the ground. And how how much capital did you guys invest to start it? We invested forty thousand dollars, believe it or not. Wow! So wait, forty thousand each or twenty thousand each? Twenty thousand each. Okay, and then what did you do with what did you do with that first forty grand? So we identified, well, we weren't even really thinking, we, we had talked a little bit about starting a dealership or a, an auto business. I was working for a company that I was transporting vehicles, so I was all over the state. And I was on my way back from a delivery and saw the property that we have in Amaral and this is the property we're in in Ombro has been a dealership since 1986. And it was right around COVID that they closed the doors. He retired, moved to Texas, and the property was available. 
So when I was in high school, I remember coming through this dealership, looking at cars all the time, you know, just seeing what he had on his lot and so forth. So it's kind of ironic that we now own the property. And anyway, look at that. Look at the funny how the world works. But I was driving past and I saw it was for sale and I pulled in and I got Boston on the phone and I said, Hey, this property is available. And I peeked in the windows, kind of saw the lifts and, and so forth. And thought, you know, this could be a possibility. And I took a picture of the realtor sign out front and made a phone call on my way back, uh, back to my house. And a month later we were in the property. Okay. So you, you use some of the cash, I guess, to buy the property. What do you do about inventory? Like how do you actually get started? Yeah. So we, we leased the property to start. I actually set up, I set up a lease with an option to buy. So we had the price locked in and so forth. Um, it was a two year lease. We ended up buying in a year end of the lease. I was trying to, trying to get ahead of the interest rates that I saw that were going to start rising and so forth. But yeah, we, Acquired the property. We, we really had, I mean, other than hand tools and stuff like that, we didn't have anything as far as, you know, AC machines or we didn't have a welder. We didn't have a torch. We didn't have anything really. You're, you're speaking with respect to repairing or reconditioning cars? Or? Yes. Yep. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So, so tell me more about that, right? Like, what did you do? Or like, what does day one look like? And you just like show up at the auction and like, yo, like, let's buy some cars. Like, what was day one like for you? We, we started the business, you know, well, the first month was really, was really startup. So I was still working full time for my previous job when we acquired the property. I actually continued to work for them for about six to eight months after opening the business. So while I was out working. Working for the tow truck company? Well, yeah, it was. That company was more than just a tow truck company. They were auto repair. They uh, had a transport company. Oh, so you were still working there full time while starting up the dealership? Yes. Yep. So oh, were, were they were they cool with that, or yeah. did they like not know about it? Well, no. Oh, I, they were cool with it. They were cool with it. Yeah. No. Oh. I, I uh, sat down with the owner. I was the GM at the time, and I sat down with them and said, you know, that this is something that I I want to do. And that's um, yeah, that's refreshing. Yeah. So um, and I was a pretty integral part of his business, you know, I did all the dispatching for the 30 trucks that he had on the road and, and so forth. So while I was out, you know, working for him, Austin went around and he set up all of the, oh, well, the boot, I was in the process of refinancing my house when we started the business. So I couldn't use my credit for anything because of the refinance process. So Austin went out, he got all of the parts account set up. He got the bank account set up while I was still working using primarily his credit, believe it or not, at 21 years old. And so I continued to work for them for about six, eight months while we were starting up the business. And I, I scaled back my, my work relationship with them where I was working remotely, still doing dispatching and so forth while I was at our shop in Hummer. What that allowed us to do was not take a salary from the new business for about eight months. Everything reinvested. Yeah, everything reinvested. So what did you do with inventory? Did you like get a floor plan or, you know, in line of credit? How did you actually fund your inventory initially? And 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 on a, in, a, in addition to that, like, how did you know what to buy? You don't have that, like, you know, 
just you don't have that customer insight yet. You know, you, it's the cold start problem, right? So how did you know just what to buy from the get go? We look for we look for value. I mean, that really that's what it amounts to. Is so. What do you mean by that? Well, we, like what what does value what does value mean to you? And value to me means uh, a vehicle that we can sell at a reasonable price so that the customer is an upside down as soon as they buy it and a vehicle that we can buy at a good price and make a good profit on. Yeah. So, so how do you, t- how do you typically, and by the way, I'm asking some of these things like semi rhetorically for the audience. I have my own opinion as well, which I'm going to share in a second. Uh, but how do you, how do you source those? Like, what do you look for in that purchase? To start with, I think it was probably more of the vehicles that needed repairs that we were able to do and get it reconditioned and really add value to the car. Yeah, I mean, it's really as simple as that. I think thinking back to like getting started in this business in the early days, you know, it's kind of when you think of the bigger, some of the bigger players, you know, I remember... I remember speaking with drive time people, Carvana people, they, they, they look in car max people, they look very closely at what they call the kick ratio, which is pretty much cars that don't make it through the recon process, get sent back to auction. And, th- and it typically triggers a kick, right? You typically send a car back to auction as a dealer when you're, you know, one of these massive corporations. And, and again, I'm generalizing, uh, but you typically do it when a car, you know, maybe needs too much reconditioning, right? Whatever that threshold is could be, you know, over X amount of dollars or X amount of panels need to be repaired. But I think that's where the opportunity lies. And that's why I asked that because I wanted to see how you've done it uh, because I've seen that opportunity as well. Like when someone asks me, hey, what's the best way to start? You know, the reality is, like you said, it's value. It's look for stuff that needs value add that the bigger guys maybe don't want to deal with. And not stuff that's like, you know, just like structurally compromised or anything like that by any means, nothing like that, but just stuff that maybe needs a little too much work that, you know, a bigger player, just, you know, the time it's going to take to put into it won't make sense. And so, I, I mean, I, I totally resonate with that. Yeah, our, our favorite thing is to buy the vehicles that somebody else can't figure out. You know, whether it's an electrical... Yeah, you get, you get the projects. Yeah. Yeah, whether it's electrical issue or, you know, a body control module or a PCM, those vehicles that people, you know, beat their head up against the wall trying to figure them out. And we're very good at it. So um, we're looking. Why why are you good at it though? Is it you? Is it your technical expertise? Like, what's the secret sauce for you? It's not just me because Austin is just as good at it as I am. I, actually, I've never seen anybody pick up drivability diagnosis as well as he has. I mean, you know, he he's been working on cars, you know, since he was in you know high school and so forth, but. When we started this business, he was green. I mean, he knew how to change brakes and he knew how to do, you know, the the nuts and bolts stuff. But he gets wiring diagrams. He 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 can understand how something works, and understanding how something works is how you diagnose it, you know, or how how you fix so, it. So you're saying you're saying your son is a is a great mechanic. He's a great technician. And that that really that gives you a huge advantage because it allows you to acquire cars that other dealers might not have that competency and therefore they can't acquire them because they can't fix them. Absolutely. Absolutely. Very interesting. So wait, going back to my other question, I think we missed it, is how do you split your duties at the dealership? Like I know you're 50-50, but what do you do? What does he do? So we both do everything. I primarily do the book work, uh, you know, the, the bookkeeping and 
keep everything current as far as that goes. But other than that, and he's got full access to it also. I mean, he, he looks at the numbers, he knows where we're at day to day also, but throughout the whole business, we do it all. I mean, there isn't anything that we would expect an employee to do that we don't do. So, you know, if, if a car needs to be detailed and we're the one that's free, we're detailing, you know, if, if a car needs brake pads put on, we're going to put brakes on it. You know, how many employees do you have right now? We have seven right now. When we started, we had, we had Austin, myself and one other employee. (laughs) So since the $40,000 you started the business with, have you put up any more money? No. Oh, so the business has been cash flow positive, profitable. Our first month, you know, I, I think we acquired the, the business beginning of July. Our first month was negative, and we've never seen a negative month since then. Incredible. And does that include any interest payments you're making? Yep. On line? Yeah? Yep. That's great. Now, how do you finance your inventory? We have two floor plans, about a, probably about a half a million line. Who are they with? Kinetic Advantage and AFC. Mm-hmm. Got it. So, so you're financing your inventory through both of them. W- walk me very briefly through that process as a just, you know, small, young dealer upstart. You know, what was it like getting those floor plans? Was it a pretty easy process for you? Again, if anyone's listening to this and wants to start a dealership or, you know, get into the business, like what was that process like for you? Yeah. So the, the, we started with Kinetic and I think they're based out of Indianapolis or Indiana, maybe Carmel, Indiana. And we had a contact at one of the auctions that was very familiar with the rep here. It was actually very easy. We were, we were probably about six months to a year in before we got our first floor plan. Otherwise we were just financing, you know, just, just rolling the, the sales back into the inventory. And making $1 into two, going to buy some more inventory. Yep, absolutely. So when we got the floor plans, we really didn't use it. I mean, we did use it, but we didn't use, we didn't go crazy, you know, and, and fill the floor floor plan. And I, I think they gave us a hundred thousand dollar line to start with. And we went from having eight or 10 cars on the lot to 15, you know, uh, but during that time, that was, that was during COVID also. And it was very hard to source vehicles. Everything was overpriced. So how are you sourcing right now? Auctions primarily, so trade-ins, but primarily auctions. Yeah. And, and what auctions are you using primarily? So we use mostly local ones. There's an American's auto auction um, in Fond du Lac. We go to Greater Milwaukee auto auction, Jefferson. As a, as a, you know, upstart dealer, is there any specific auction that you think is like the most favorable, the most helpful to, you know, young dealers starting the business, or would you say it's, you know, pretty equal across the board? I would say it's pretty equal across the board. You know, definitely some auctions are better than others. We have one auction that we've tried going to multiple times and their prices are high. So if we're ever going to send a vehicle to auction. Who's that? uh, Who's that? The Pier Auto Auction. Fox is that Valley. just like a, a lo- yeah, Fox a local Valley auction? Yeah, Fox Valley Auto Auction. Yeah, yeah, so you send all your, yeah, you get the arbitrage. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and we don't send that many vehicles through the auction. Of it, course it, not. You got to retail that. Yeah. Right, absolutely. If we can retail, I mean, usually it's trade-ins, you know, that we're, we're not comfortable selling. You know, it, it, 
we kind of have a saying that if, if I wouldn't sell it to my daughter, am I going to sell it on the lot? Yeah, I hear you. So tell me, tell me a little bit about, I want to dig in more into your business model. So how long have you been in business? Just over two years. Okay. Just over two years. And when did you like walk me through how you launched all these adjacent kind of parts to your business? When did you launch the tow truck business? Again, that takes money, right? So like, when did that happen? Then you launched like a Tesla modification business, which is like, I think it's awesome. Like you're being super creative. I really like that. So just walk me through like the sequencing here. When did all these different businesses launch and why? Why did they launch each one? Sure. With the exception of the Tesla modification business, everything started at the same time. I made a business plan. I was very versed in towing. I was, you know, versed in auto sales and auto repair. And those were the three aspects of our business. I made a little bit of a mistake, I think, when when I when we started the business, because we we named our business, our legal name is Miller Auto Towing and Recovery LLC. If you look at our logo, Miller Auto is prominent because our prominent business was always designed to be car sales. But with the towing and recovery, so we don't do any repoing. Recovery, in, in my mind, when I created the name, was getting the vehicles out of the Wisconsin ditches in the winter and, you know. Ah, yeah. And recovery is very much an industry term for like repos. Yep. Yep. So, so it was a little bit of a mistake. We, I've, I've since rebranded a little bit and we're just known as Miller Auto now, or, or I'm, I'm, I just began doing that about a month ago because what I found was, you know, you get your leads or phone calls on cars or what have you, because we're towing and recovery, everybody's thinking, are these repo vehicles? Do they have clean titles? You know, and are they salvage vehicles? And it, that kind of gave a, it was overcomable, but it gave a little bit of a, a negative stigma, I think, to our inventory. So we started focusing more on just Miller Auto versus Miller Auto towing and recovery. Yeah. What's it like selling or I guess different, like why, why launch a Tesla business in Wisconsin? And <laughs> like when I, when I mean a Tesla business, like you have a specific part on your website dedicated to selling used Teslas. Like I feel like, I feel like Teslas wouldn't sell too well in Wisconsin. And I'm just, I don't know why I feel that way, but I just feel that way. Am I right? Am I wrong? Like walk me through that. That's why we did it because Teslas and EVs are very underadopted in Wisconsin versus the rest of the country. There is, and you just jumped on that opportunity. There is nobody else playing in the space, you know? So, I mean, the you, bur- the bur- you, from- s- you slick mother effort, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, 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 the Bergstrom's and you know, the big uh, retails, Dude, you are, you, you're so scrappy. Like, I love it. You're killing <laughs> me right now. You're just like, you're like all the nooks and crannies. You're not missing. You're not missing a beat. Yeah. So I, I actually, we, we, my wife and I took our very first vacation in February after opening the business for a week. We went to Arizona. Prior to going, you know, so I've been a, a very, very small, I mean, almost not even worth mentioning Tesla investor for a while. You know, I have some shares, um, nothing significant, but I've always been intrigued by them. So I love technology and I love cars. That's a Tesla in a nutshell, technology and cars. I mean, so before going on vacation, I put a bid on ACV on a Tesla. 
2020 Model 3, had full self-driving, you know, so forth. I, my bid was rejected. So we ended up going on vacation. I'd never even driven a Tesla before. I just thought they were cool. Went on vacation. Our last day of the vacation, we went to Tesla in Phoenix, Arizona, and I test drove one. I got on the plane. I raised my bed. We took off. When I landed, I won the Tesla. So it was shipped to me, and it all went from there. Again, I'm a car guy. I love internal combustion engines. I like big blocks. I, I mean, I, I like performance. There's just something about a Tesla with the instant torque, you know, lack of maintenance. Just, I think that they're going to be superior. And when you say lack of maintenance, how does that impact your business? Because I, I noticed also that on your service page, like you don't list oil changes. Yeah. Is that because of the Tesla effect or? No, auto repair is a, it's profitable, but for as thin as we run, as far as manpower and so forth, it's a time drain. So we do good work. Um, anybody that does. It's a what? I'm sorry. I missed that. It, it, it's a what? A, it's a time drain. Takes uh, a lot of time. Time drain. Yeah, of course. So we do good work uh, when it comes to auto repair and so forth. And anybody that does good work will have work for days. I mean, it, it's hard to find a trustworthy mechanic and somebody that's not just going to throw parts at vehicles and so forth. So going in, I realized that if we were going to be auto repair, then we were going to be auto repair because we're going to have customers waiting on their cars, so on and so forth. And we just decided that car sales was going to be our primary focus. And we were going to pick and choose what services we wanted to offer to the general public. And that's where the brakes and steering suspension. Oh, I get it. Believe me. You're, you're, I, uh, close, you know, yeah, we never, we never went like all into service. We had a ser service center and then we, you know, we upgraded to a reconditioning center that was offsite, like not retail, open to the retail and stuff like that. But I totally get it. So, but with you buying value add cars, like deep value add, look, how are you dealing with customer issues? Like later, like a month, two, three months down the line. Like, is that manageable? Do you have a lot of stuff coming back? Like, how are you dealing with that? No, we do. We absolutely try and do our best not to have anything come back. So, and we do have comebacks, but we stand yeah, behind. Yeah, as the every dealer, yeah. Yeah, we stand behind the vehicles that we sell. So, I mean, I've went as far as we sold, we sold a 2018 Ford Escape. That had like 120,000 miles on it, two liter. I personally drove that car 800 miles before we sold it. I took it to Minnesota to pick up one of our wreckers and brought it back. Not 200 miles after we sold it, it started misfiring and had the coolant intrusion issues. So what do you do? I mean, a customer bought this vehicle, 200 miles they put on it. I ordered a short block. We put a short block in it at no cost to the customer. So, you know, I mean, that's how you make a name for yourself. And our reputation is very important. Yeah, I mean, no, look, I think you're you're focusing on every single car. And I, I think the only downside I would say to that is like, how scalable is that, right? Like at some point, you know, you can't drive every car for, you know, a week, two, three weeks, a month. Yeah, yeah. And it's very hard now that I have a Tesla. I don't want to drive anything else. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to drive the rest of the car. <laughs> but no, we do. We, we do a very good job of reconditioning them. We at least typically probably put a hundred plus miles on them. 
our sales manager and Nina. Smart. He lives probably about a 40 minute commute. Austin and I both live around a 40 minute commute away from the, the shop. So we all drive the vehicles, you know, and we're, and we listen to our customers when they're test driving them. If they come back and they say, Hey, you know, something feels goofy with this or what have you, which doesn't happen very often. But if we do have one of those complaints, it's not like, a, Oh yeah, you don't know what you're talking about. See you later. We'll take a ride with them, see what they're experiencing. How many cars are you selling right now per week? Per week, we're probably... Or per month? Probably around 20 per month. Honestly, we were running 10, probably 10 to 12 a month. And we've almost doubled that after we started advertising on cars.com. Really? Yeah. So uh, cars.com has been very, very good for us. We started with one of our locations, with our Nina location, because it's a little bit higher population and so forth. And it wasn't probably three weeks after that, that we added the second location to it. Wow. So yeah, I was, I should ask you like, how do you advertise? Is it onlycars.com? Do you do anything else? Yeah. So when we started, we weren't really doing anything other than our website and marketplace, you know, Facebook marketplace. We had carsforsale.com that we tried a little bit, but you know, I think that's great if, if you're a dealer that doesn't have the means to build a website. So, I mean, we're getting daily leads from cars.com and I think higher quality leads than, than marketplace. Marketplace has been very good for us too. Yeah. I mean, what about like Facebook, just Facebook ads, Instagram, do you do any of that stuff? We don't do any Facebook, not for our vehicles anyway. I've done a little, I played a little bit with, you know, the Teslas and with towing. We do run Google ads for the towing business here and there. We, we don't always run ads, but. So walk me through for a second. If we take like a bird's eye view of your business and your, what do you, what are you right now profiting on a monthly basis? Net profit, we're probably uh, 30 grand. Mm-hmm. And that's 30 grand on, or like, what, you know what percent percentage margin that is? Or, you know, yeah. So before we opened the second location, we we're running about a 20% net margin. Net margin. Yeah. Yeah. Right now we're with the new location. You know, we're six, eight months into the new location. Uh, we're running about 16%. So it, it dropped a little bit. But I mean, it's, it's still great. You know, you're still outperforming industry. Yeah, we're so I, I'm pretty happy with where we're at. I mean, I'm a numbers guy, so you can walk into my dealership any day and I can tell you what what our bottom line is. Oh yeah, I love that. Yeah, you're on top of your numbers. Yeah, it's well, that's important. You know, I, I've worked for a lot of places that operated based on what their checkbook, checkbook balance was, and it's like I don't know how you do it. <laughs> So basically, you know, you've just reinvested that. Like, that's how you purchase your tow trucks. That's how you've, you know, expanded the business. We bought two truck tow trucks right out of the gate. So we had two rollbacks when we started. I bought those from the company that I left when I started the business. And a couple extra trucks and made us uh, a good deal. We've since, I think we have, yeah, we have six, uh, four rollbacks flatbeds, if you will, and two rackers. So we have six trucks. And in terms of your monthly, like your average monthly profit, what percentage of that or what portion of that is from car sales 
and what's from like, you know, tow truck business and everything else. So from a growth aspect, 75% of our revenue, uh, 74% of our revenue is from car sales. Towing and transport's about 20%, 21%, and auto repair is about 5%. I'd imagine that uh, the, the car sales is the lower margin stuff. Yeah, so our if you look at gross profit numbers, towing and transport, gross profit is about the same as car sales. Interesting. Yet it's only 20% of your business? Yeah, so, so the... Margin, gross margin on car sales is right around probably 25, 30%. And we're about 80% gross margin, you know, not including payroll, obviously. Oh, yeah. So tell me, and then in terms of just like nominal figures, like how much are you actually making on a car? You sell a car for 10 grand. How much money are you making? Our goal is to be two to three grand a car. Got it. And is that after paying commissions and advertising and all that or? Pre-commission after advertising and so forth though. Got it. So we have one sales manager besides Austin and I, you know, that sell cars. So we're three licensed sales people. We, we don't pressure sell any cars. The cars sell themselves. So we do. The, the deals, the deals sell themselves when you're selling deep value ads. It's just- People come from anywhere in the country, I'm going to guess. Yeah. So commissions on our dealership probably aren't as much of an expense as it would be for a, a, a larger, you know, franchise dealer or something like that. Yeah. I think, look, you've, you've built a business that is reliant upon yourself, but you know, there's the way I see scaling is like, you know, I always, you know, dealers used to just have conversation stuff. Hey, should I open up another store? This and that. You're like, I, I believe it's you, you either, you know, open up like three to five stores or you, or you keep one store. Like that teeter tottering. And I know you're in two stores, by the way. So we'll get to that. But what I'm trying to say is like, there's a, there's a point, right? There's a point at scale where you're adding cost faster than you're adding margin and you're not getting the full effect of that operating leverage. And so, you know what I mean? And so I'm curious like, on your end, like you have two stores, right? How are you managing that? You can't be both in both places at once. How are you doing that? Manpower. I mean, our sales manager, Brian is in Nina. Oh, got it. So you have that sales manager over there and then you're, you're kind of holding the four down in the other store. Yeah. And well, between Austin and I, yeah. But Brian is primarily, I, I'll go days without going to the Nina location, but he's got it covered. He's doing deals. He's working with dealer centered to get stuff set up or he's finding indirect financing. We couldn't do two locations without him as effectively as we are. Of course. Yeah. What about like warranties or, you know, vehicle service contracts? Are you offering all that to your customers? Yeah. We do have a couple different warranty companies. AOL is one of them. We just signed up with another one. I'm not sure off the top of my head what the name of it is. Uh, we're finalizing that. So. But we didn't for, I, I think I've only, we've only been with AUL for the last three months, something like that. It's very difficult. And probably the, one of the toughest things about a small startup dealership is getting people to return your calls. That's probably the most frustrating. When you say it's tough to get people to call you back, are you referring to vendors? Yeah. Or are you referring to customers? Oh, you're referring to like industry vendors. Industry vendors, yeah. 
So I want to I want to dive a little bit deeper into the Tesla stuff you got going on. In terms of like the trick my Tesla, it's one of the one of the pages on your website. You do like these Tesla modifications. How like are you doing a lots of these? Is it kind of kind of a niche product or like what do you see there? I guess we do we do a fair amount of them. It slowed down a little bit, but a lot of it depends on how active we are on social media also. So that that's where most of that stuff comes from. So we sponsor the Tesla Club of Wisconsin and we're involved in their community, go to some of their events and, and so forth. And if the the power frank and the yolks are probably the two <laughs> main things that we that we install. Uh, and all it takes is doing one install and having somebody post a video of the new power frank oh, yeah. I got from Miller Auto and I got three or four more but are you are you getting customers from Wisconsin specifically or from all over the country? Oh, uh, Wisconsin specifically. Yeah. Well, well, some some Illinois. And then zooming out on the Tesla conversation, when Elon had like you know went with the price cuts, did that hurt? What did that feel like for you? And you know, yeah. having your vehicles drop in value, like talk to me about that. Yeah. So you mentioned you mentioned only one losing month, which is the first one, right? So right. But I'm still curious to hear how that felt. Yeah. So. That was the closest month that we had to, to losing again. But Austin and I enter into every new venture with a backup plan. So, so, so what's the backup plan here? So, or what we, was it? Yeah. yeah, we had three or four, three or four Teslas on the lot when we saw the prices start going down. We got lucky; we got rid of one of them. Actually, we we, we sold we sold two of them. But our backup plan was always that if we couldn't sell a Tesla, we were going to buy a personal. So I now have a 2021 Model Y and Austin has a 2017 Tesla Model S, which from the time, the very first time that we had a Tesla in inventory, I knew that the next vehicle that was registered, my name was going to be a Tesla. So I'm good with it. So right now we have one Tesla available for sale. It's a consignment vehicle. We're kind of just taking a pause on the Tesla use sales at this point, I think they're going to be very good in the future. But while the you know EV tax credit is going on and Elon's lowering the prices and so forth, again, we like to do things that make sense for the customers. And if a customer can get that $7,500 tax credit, that makes sense. And what's the feedback you're seeing, though, from customers? Like when they're coming to you for, for an EV for Tesla, are they surprised you're carrying these in Wisconsin? Or is there like, wow, I can actually buy this here if I want to? Like, well, what is that reaction like from the customer? Yeah, so that that was another reason why we wanted to, you know, carry that Tesla inventory because go, go and take a Tesla for a test drive. I mean, it, it's not easy. You, you can go to Tesla, you can schedule an appointment, you can take a test drive and so forth, but there is no no impulse available with Tesla. You know, you, you can't drive past and say, holy crap, there's a Tesla on the lot. Like, yeah, but, but you are that, you are that impulse. You are that on-demand yeah. test drive. Come, come to Miller Auto, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And for our non-EV buying customers, it's a great talking point. I mean, they all, um, I shouldn't say they all, a lot of them ask about it. And a lot of them come in with, negative opinions about Tesla's and we'll talk to them and we'll take them for a drive, whether they're a buyer or not. And once they do, it's like, holy cow, these things are cool. <laughs> wow. Yeah, dude, you're, you're evangelizing it. Good for you. 
Very, very cool. And and then when it comes to like charging and all that, are people concerned about that when they buy from you, especially in Wisconsin, which I'd have to imagine the charging infrastructure is like not that advanced. Just my my guess because it's not a coastal city. So is that true? Yeah, actually, no. You can drive pretty much anywhere in Wisconsin. There are superchargers everywhere. What? Oh, really? Yeah. That's good. So, I mean, there's one eight miles away from our from our store. There's. I I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, I think they've they've opened four in Wisconsin just this year alone. So, and, and that's one of the reasons why we're focused on, we've focused on Teslas more than any other EVs because the charging infrastructure is there. The charging infrastructure isn't there for, you know, the, the Fords, the Lightnings, Mach-E's and so forth. So I'd like to get into those, but until, until they start coming out, you know, using Tesla supercharger or more infrastructure comes out, it's a hard sell, you know, for the customer that wants to do anything more than commute. Yeah. So before before we wrap up, I want to just go like more macro. You know, interest rates. I've I've had so many discussions with dealers about just interest rates and how it's been impacting their floor plans and just overall business. How has it impacted you? Would you say, right, from the lending perspective? Actually, we didn't even talk about consumer lending. I want to touch on that. But on like, you know, when it comes to your line of credits and stuff like that, are you feeling the impact of interest rates on a micro level? Yeah, to I mean, to a certain degree anyway. I, most of our inventory were able to move in a pretty decent timeline. If we don't move it, again, with the reinvesting into the business, if it's a vehicle that hasn't sold, that's coming due for a curtailment or, you know, is nearing the end of the floor plan term and it's a, a good value of car and you know there's no reason to auction it off we, we just pay it off and and take it off the floor plan you know it'll sell so you're saying you just you just fund it with your cash if it gets to that point and um you know, it's interesting because i watch the market i listen and listen to your podcast i i follow twitter see what's going on and I'm more conservative than Austin is, and he's probably been right more than I have because we get our lot full of inventory, and I'm like, we need to slow down. You know, we got to move some cars before we start buying more cars. And he's like, but Dad, he says they're going to sell, and when we can buy them, it's interesting because sales will slow down. We're able to buy them, stock up our lot. And then we'll all of a sudden we'll sell everything and we, we don't have any cars left. And so he, he keeps me on that even keel where we were just constantly. The nature of the beast, the yeah. nature of the beast, you know, it oscillates. It goes up and it goes down. But yeah, you got to stay steady and consistent. Yeah. That's what I've learned in this business. You know what I mean? You can't react emotionally because you just missed the boat. So staying steady and consistent. And then when it comes to consumer lending, what I mean, one of the biggest pain points for dealers, independent dealers, you know, just lending financing for their customers. How, how, how did you do that? Yeah, we're just now finally getting set up with indirect lending. Ah, right. you're I, just starting now. Yes. So we have we have two lenders set up as indirect lenders. And who are they? We have a local credit union that services Wisconsin. And we're hopefully just finalizing uh, Westlake Financial, which I've not worked with. And if any lenders, because there are 
there are a good, healthy amount of lenders that listen to this podcast. They should reach out to you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, get I mean, you, and get you set up on their platform. Yeah, because there's there's some good lenders that follow the podcast. So Yeah, for sure. We've done a lot of deals with local credit unions and so forth, but it's, it's always been direct to consumer. You know, which is as difficult. So, know. so what did you do before getting indirect lending? And also, for anyone in the audience that doesn't know what indirect lending means, it just means that the dealer is set up with a lender through a portal, and when you come to the dealership, they get you financing through a third-party lender, right? So they're not financing it themselves; rather, they get hooked up with, you know, just giving hypothetical examples: uh, a Wells Fargo, a Capital One, uh, a Westlake, uh, you know, a credit acceptance, and that's who actually finances your deal. Or, you know, it's facilitated that way. So going back to that question, how did you initially do your lending, did you say? So we would work with, you know, loan officers and so forth, send purchase contracts and so forth. But it was ultimately the customer's responsibility to reach out to their financial institution, which we didn't have much problems getting consumers to follow through with it, especially if, you know, it was a vehicle that they wanted and, and had the means. You know, we've never really got into subprime or, or don't really plan to get into subprime. We do do some buy here, pay here stuff, but on a very case-by-case basis, you know, that just depending. Oh, man, you're uh, you're bringing me back to the roots. It's just so awesome. Yeah. I love what you're doing. Seriously, keep it up. Thanks for being a follower and just, you know, supporter of CDG. For the audience, for any potential business partners, for anyone that wants to reach out to you, What's the best way to get in contact with you or to learn more about Miller Autos? Sure. MillerATR.com is our website. Our email's on there. I'm actively stalking Twitter. Um, I don't post a whole lot, but at MillerATR is our Twitter handle. Facebook, MillerATR, I'll see. Yeah, so don't do much on LinkedIn either. MillerATR, I love it. All right, Brandon, thanks so much for coming on. Any, Any last words, anything else you want to say before we hop off? No, uh, keep doing what you're doing. I think you do a great job at what you do and I'll be watching. Appreciate it, man. Thanks so much. All right, you bet. All right, hope you enjoyed that episode. Please give the podcast a rating, consider subscribing to the show and check the show notes for links to what we talked about. Thanks for tuning in. I'll see you guys next time.